Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. Uh, We had a misprint in the bulletin. And so, but you can't get enough of the Bible. So, John chapter 16, and look at verse 16 of John 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what is he What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We're observing in John's gospel this last interaction, really, at any length of Jesus with his disciples. And what we're finding is that they are consumed by the crisis that is upon them that soon will overwhelm them and grieve them to the point of despair. It it is very difficult, isn't it, to bear with trials when they seem to be prolonged and there seems to be no end to them. And that's the way it must have felt to these disciples. The wise man in Proverbs 13 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'm reading a novel just now, and, and one, of the sto- one of the many stories in the novel is, uh, is a relationship between a man and a woman in, in medieval England, and uh, because their marriage has not been officiated by the church, the couple are having to live apart. And at this point in the novel, they have been living apart for 10 years, and the woman's getting fed up with this and says, look, <laughs> this is going nowhere, we can't get an... You know, we're, we're, we cannot be together, we can't have our marriage recognized because of some political chicanery that was going on with the bishop and the archbishop and so on, and she's fed up with them. Hope deferred, hope deferred makes the heart sick. There needs to be an end, there needs to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what we find Jesus telling his disciples here in verse 16. A little while. And you will see me no longer. That was what they were occupied with. That was on their minds. That's dominating their thinking. But he wants to comfort them. And so he says, again a little while and you will see me. I think we have a little insight just in passing here to the concern the Lord shows 
for his people, especially for his people who are struggling, who are not able to find their way through to meaning and understanding of the circumstances that they find themselves in. He, he is always keen to comfort his people. We've been seeing that in Isaiah, in that great 40th chapter. And the word comfort is repeated elsewhere in the, in the book of Isaiah. He is anxious to bring the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of his word, and to use that as a kind of salve for your soul. We're told, for example, by the Apostle Paul in Corinthians that God himself is a God of all comfort. We're told in the Gospels, as you read them, that Jesus is regularly moved with compassion when he sees the crowd, especially when he sees them in their helplessness and sees them without direction and purpose, like sheep without a shepherd to lead them. Or when he sees a sick person whose case is irremediable, irremediable and he acts, he intervenes, he, he is eager to serve and to help. He's always eager to pour the, uh, the oil of his love and joy into our wounds and to apply to our lives the balm of his truth. Well, on this night, he is addressing their worst fears. Interesting thing is we know that they should have known better. He'd been, he'd been constantly telling them this would come. They should have known better. And if they'd really been listening to him, they should even have rejoiced that this was the hour that the Father had appointed because although there was going to be separation and death, there was also going to be resurrection and reunion. The Son was going to be reunited with his Father. He was going back to the glory from which he had come. If they'd been listening, if they'd been listening even this very night to what he'd been saying right at the beginning of the evening, recorded in chapter 13, they would have rejoiced. If they'd been listening, and they'd been listening to what he was about to endure, he told them that as well, they might even have been a bit more sensitive and sought to comfort him in face of the trial that he was facing. But here they are, and how like us they are, focused on their own feelings. They were feeling, we know exactly how they were feeling, because Jesus puts his finger on it. Uh, He says... uh, that they were feeling as if they were about to be orphaned back in chapter 14. Abandoned. That was the way they were feeling. Jesus is leaving us. We've, you know, we've given up our jobs and we've given up our families and we've been following him for three years and we believed he was the king of Israel and we believed he was going to set up the kingdom and, and we have, we've, we've invested everything we have and everything we are in him as our leader and we believe that he was going to turn the world upside down and what is he telling us now? He's going to leave us? And you can sense the frustration that they are feeling. And yet the amazing thing to me is this, that the Lord actually addresses those feelings. He goes to where they are. He he stoops tenderly to where they are at this point in the confusion and frustration that they are feeling. And he makes this prediction. Here it is, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Now we understand what the first little while was. 
It's obviously his arrest, which is only hours away, his trial, which is going to take place during the night, his death that will take place the next morning, and then the burial. He is going away. And when he's gone, all their hopes will be shattered. But there's a second little while. And uh, it's this little while, quote-unquote, that uh, is the subject of a lot of discussion. Uh, We can understand that perhaps, perhaps what he meant was there will be this period of separation, three days or so, when Jesus will be gone, dead, buried. But then he'll come back again. He will rise from the dead. He will reappear to them. He will show himself after his passion by many infallible proofs, meeting them in different locations, under different circumstances, in various groups, At various times, he will appear to them, he will eat with them, he will be with them for 40 days before his ascension to heaven. But there's another subject that's been on Jesus' mind. And as we've gone through this chapter, even if you just glance at the text, you'll see one of the themes of this chapter has been this. If I go, then the Holy Spirit will come. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I go and return to my Father, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. He will never leave you. That was his promise. So his physical going is necessary for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is going to have a very climactic influence upon these men. He's already predicted that in in chapter 16 at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Spirit was coming, and the Spirit would be the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit's presence with you would mean the extension of the presence of Jesus with you. Jesus in his humanity can only be in one place at one time. And his humanity will be in heaven with God on the throne of glory. But by the Spirit, Jesus is able to be present with each one of you wherever you are, anywhere in the world, all the time. And he will never leave you and never forsake you. Well, where they were that night, none of this made any sense to them. I love the honesty of the Bible because John was one of those people. He was there. And so he is being honest with us. He's saying, you know, when Jesus said that that night, it made absolutely no sense. No sense to us. Some of the disciples said to one another, what what is this? What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And quote, I am going to the Father And so they were saying, John reports, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Other times you find, other times you find when you read the Bible, you you don't know what it's talking about. Other times when the message of the Bible or what God is teaching you sometimes just feels as if it's too hard to process or take in. Well, that's what they felt. And this enigmatic statement of Jesus startles them. What does he mean, a little while? I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. When you're gone, you're gone. Now, of course, John's first readers, they're living after, after the resurrection. They're living after Pentecost. And, and so they understand a little bit of what's going on in the text here. 
But I think right there, at the point they are at, they, they are wondering. They're, they're reasoning. They're trying to reason about what's going on here. And they're coming to terms with Jesus telling them that he's going away. And they're thinking to themselves, if Jesus wants to found Messiah's kingdom, why would he go away? And if he doesn't want to found it, found the kingdom of God, why would he return? In other words, it was not computing. It wasn't making sense to them. And so Jesus, with this remarkable insight, knows exactly what's going on. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? In other words, he's demonstrating to them that he knows. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows what's going on in your heart. He understands this. He's saying this to them in order that it would call them up short and they would realize that the questions that go on in your mind and in the heart of the believer, those questions you think you're only asking yourself in the quiet and silence of your own room or in your own mind are being heard in heaven. They are being read and understood in heaven. None of your questions ever fall to the ground. They are always heard in heaven. And so Jesus knew, and what an illustration this is of God's kindly ways with us creatures. Captured in Isaiah 65, it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. That's always the way it is with God. Well, Jesus responds to them then in verse 20 with this solemn formula. A formula, by the way, based on the way the God of Israel speaks to his people. Only here, Jesus places all the authority on himself and on himself alone. The Greek reads, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. This is what's going to happen. Face up to it. This is the reality of what is going to happen in the first little while. This apostate nation, this apostate people that has bitterly rejected their Messiah, will break your heart. They will rejoice and you will be broken. You will weep and lament. I will be snatched from you and you will lose me for a little while. And you will be racked with sorrow while they are dancing around. All hell will be dancing around because Jesus will be crucified, dead, and buried. And the apostate leaders of the nation, they will be bouncing up and down ecstatic that at last they've dealt with the Nazarene. And instead... They would get about the business of denying the resurrection, initiating a cover-up, bribing soldiers, concocting an alternative narrative, spreading lies, and starting a fierce campaign of persecution and violence to silence the witnesses. You will lament. They will rejoice. But that isn't the end of the story. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn to joy. And we can think of the reasons that that should be. We can think of the tomb, that empty tomb, that morning, the the appearances of Jesus when he comes to show himself to them alive after his passion. 
That was the event that would turn these men upside down, transform these men who appear cowards into heroes. If the little while is a little while between his going and dying and his resurrection, certainly the resurrection would turn their grief into total joy. For there they saw him. There they understood that the cross, which was for them the the source of their grief and their lament, was in fact the way of eternal life to people. When he came to them, visibly, tangibly, audibly, they could see him, touch him, hear him, eat with him. Coming to them not as a disembodied spirit, not as a hallucination, but rather coming in a physicality of flesh and bone, demonstrating to them that death could not simply be survived, but death could be undone. And the resurrection would shed light on the cross. So much so that they would love the cross. They would glory in the cross. They would preach the cross. What caused their sadness would cause their eternal joy. That's the reality, isn't it, for these first eyewitnesses. The resurrection led to an unconquerable change in their mood. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You know, when the apostle Peter is presenting his credentials to Cornelius, who was a Roman official, he says this, God raised him on the third day. And caused him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And he ate and drank, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He turns their mourning into gladness and gives them joy instead of sorrow. It's then that he uses this illustration in verse 21 of a woman giving birth who is sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. If you've had children, you may think that's just being a a man's blasé approach to the whole process. But I think as a general rule, as a general rule, as time passes, well, I can say this myself, I've had five children. I'm looking good for it. And as time passes, you forget all that. and, And it's the joy of having the children, isn't it? Well, for the pain and the agony of sorrow, there comes this productive, wonderful reality of the child. And Jesus is saying this. All the process of his betrayal, his trial, his assault, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, all of that has a positive effect. It has a purposeful effect. He'd already taught them this back in chapter 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. You can leave it on your shelf. That grain of wheat will do nothing while it's sitting there. It'll just always be a little grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground, into the soil, and it dies there, it will produce fruit, much fruit. And he's saying to them, if you lose me this way, you will gain me. In the future. By the way, you notice what he goes on to say, verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. 
Three times, verse 16, 17, 19, he says, you will see me. But look what Jesus says here in verse 22. I will see you. He loved these men. He loves his people. He was as anxious to see them as they were to see him. He's anxious to be with them as much as they would be anxious to be with him. What's the product of all that? He says, your heart will rejoice. Your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, in that day, there will be irrevocable joy. Now, if it applies to the resurrection, that certainly is the case. John later on tells us in chapter 20 that when Jesus came to them and he showed them his hands and his side and they realized it was him, the disciples were glad. That's a kind of understatement. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Irrevocable joy. But Jesus, I think, is thinking not only of the resurrection. He's thinking of the effect of his ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit is the subject that is on his mind. Again, if you look at chapter 16, that is the theme. He reminds them again and again, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. Talking to those men, those men he's leaving, those men who will see him alive after his passion. Talking to them. Look at verse 23. In that day, you... The same people that he's leaving. You will ask nothing of me. Now, look at the context. Jesus has just said to them, is this what you want to ask me? You have a question in your mind. You're talking about about it among yourselves. You're thinking it in your head. You want to ask me about this. Jesus says, is this what you want to ask me? And he, he repeats what's on their mind. So that's the background to this. You want to understand what this, in that day you will ask nothing of me, means, then you have to see it in the context of the passage. And in the context of the passage, it is this. There they were, they were confused, they didn't know what was going on, they were wondering what it would be, and Jesus teases out of them the question, gets them to ask him the question, and then answers the question. But he's promising them that there will a day come a day when they will not ask him anything. What is that day? Well, it's the day he's been talking about, when the Spirit of truth comes. Verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare it to you, the things that are to come. What was going to happen for these disciples? The Holy Spirit was going to come to supplement the teaching, the language, the words of Jesus. He was going to expand the teaching Jesus had given to them. He was going to remind them of things Jesus had said that they'd forgotten. The Holy Spirit's ministry was to speak to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. And the part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to do for them what he now does for us, and that is to create in our hearts a sense that although we have never seen Jesus physically, we have seen him by faith. Although we have never been there to hear Jesus teaching us, nonetheless we've heard his teaching whenever the word of God is taught to us. 
In that day you will ask nothing of me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will be there. The Spirit of God will be there. The Spirit of God will be giving you the Word of God. He'll be giving the church the Word of God. You will believe in me. People will believe in me through the message that God gives to you. And in that, in that day, he says, in that day, prayer will be different. In that day, you will ask the Father. You won't ask me, but you'll ask the Father in my name. You'll ask for guidance. You'll ask for insight. You'll, you'll pray to me, to, to the Father, in my name, and he will give it to you. When you're asking your questions, when you're coming to the Bible, when you're looking for meaning and, and purpose and, and direction and teaching from Scripture, when, when you're faced with issues about which the Word of God speaks, but you're not clear what the Word of God is saying, what do you do about that? Well, you ask the Father. And whatever you ask the Father in Jesus' name, he will give it to you. Now, what is the Lord Jesus speaking about here? Well, he's speaking about his ascension. He's speaking about his current present ministry. What is his current present ministry? It is that right now he is our advocate with the Father. Right now he is present with the Father. Right now, whenever we go to God, we go to God through Jesus. I want you to see this. There are no other intermediaries. There are no other intermediaries. You don't have to go through any other figure in the past. No saints, no mother, no other figure needs to get between you and asking the Father except the Lord Jesus. You understand, Jesus is saying to you, this is the way to pray to God. This is the only way to pray to God. The only way to be heard by God is to go through Jesus in his name. There is no other God and there is no other name by which God, the God who is there, hears you and answers your prayer. That's what Jesus is claiming here. And the Holy Spirit in your heart, the Holy Spirit which gave the Bible to the apostles, the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, dwells within you, and he is the resident truth teacher of the church. And so with the Holy Spirit giving you the word of truth which we have here, And your ability to go straight to the Father when you have a question and ask it in Jesus' name. With all of that equipment, you're in a better place than they were this night. Because you have insight they didn't have that night. You have the Spirit, you have an anointing from the Holy One, says John in 1 John. All of you as believers have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know, he says, you know there is a knowledge you have as a child of God right now that is greater than the knowledge these men had at this point in the history of redemption. The Spirit had not come yet. Jesus had not died, risen, and gone back to heaven yet. But now that that has been accomplished, you're in a better place tonight than they were. You haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. That's true. The eyewitness testimony of these men is recorded in Scripture. But you have a better thing in terms of living the Christian life. You have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables you to directly approach the Father in Jesus' name. 
Well, isn't that amazing? This is where we are tonight in redemptive history. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and it will, you will receive that your joy might be full. The picture is of Jesus, our great mediator, and he's there with the Father. And when we pray in Jesus' name, that is not simply a formula that we do, that we use. It's not a, a convenient kind of ending to a prayer. You know, like I'm talking about something to God, and how do I finish? Well, I say in Jesus' name, or for Jesus' sake, or whatever. That is the whole ground of our acceptance. That is the springboard that gets me into the presence of God, that gets me heard by him. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is our entree into the presence of God. And we come to God then on the basis of his finished work. He has opened up the way for us. And from now on, the way to come, the way to pray is to come to the Father through him. And he's talking about the kinds of things that we may pray about. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What kind of things can I ask the Father for? Well, Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? Give us a list of priorities about what we may have in our prayer life. What kinds of things can I ask the Father for that, that his name would be hallowed, that his will would be done, that his kingdom would come, that, we, that I might have my daily bread, that I might be kept from temptation, that I might be able to have my sins pardoned and forgiven, that I might have his strength from day to day. That's the kind of thing. Those kind of the kind of things that I can come to the Father and speak to him about. Those are the issues. Those are the real vital issues of my life. And what about the, what about the smaller things? Can I, can I tell him the things? that I'm worried about, concerned about, the things that are on my mind. Jesus has just taught these men practically. He knows what's on your mind. Spit it out. Tell it to the Father. Pour it out to the Father. You come here this evening and, and you have, you're worried, you're concerned, you're anxious about many things. What do you do with those things? Bottle them up inside, make yourself ill. Pour them out to your Father. Bring them to Him in Jesus' name. And here's Jesus' promise. You'll be heard. You're already heard. Even before you ask, you're heard. He just wants you to pour it out there to Him. And He will hear from heaven. And He will answer your prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this evening that as we've looked at the life of these men at this crucial point in their lives and learned the principles that these verses teach us. We thank you that our Lord Jesus knows what's on our mind and heart. We thank you that he has sent this great gift of the Holy Spirit who has illumined the issues, the very things that they were thinking about, the questions that were on their mind then are now answered by the work of the Spirit. And we have those answers in the Bible. And that where we struggle with Scripture, where we struggle to understand what's in the Bible, thank you that the, the way has been open for us to come to you and ask our questions to you, our Heavenly Father. Not only about what's in the Bible, but what's going on in our lives. The struggles we're facing. The temptations we're meeting. 
that we can bring these things and we can do so boldly in Jesus' name. And that your great, your great joy, Father, is our great joy, that our joy might be full. You want us to have peace of mind. You want us to find our joy in you. We pray that we do that this evening. In Jesus' strong name, amen.